Here we are, August 5th, 2012, uh, lecture discussion number 77 on the book of Romans. And, uh, well, let's see if we can actually get ourselves uh, away from the huge pile of truths that are encompassed in Exodus 20 and Acts 2 and Revelation 6, 7, and 8. And I don't, I don't really always put six, seven, and eight down. I always stop at six, or most of the time. Uh, but you should know that all three of those end up being in Exodus, or being in Acts two. And we could honestly stay right there for months, just in those chapters, uh, completely shutting down Romans. I could, and I have been asked to do that already a couple of times, but that would be a serious breach of professional pastoral protocol, um, as well as uh, now I'm, I'd have a precedent, and it would uh, make it so that I'd have to abandon every series I ever start without being significantly complete. And you may not know this, not many are aware of this, but there are rules to this pastor stuff, and you have to adhere to them, because if I did stop every series halfway through and get tied up in these kinds of things for months, uh, that we'd have chaos, and we can't be having chaos, and, uh, and we can't be having pastors running amok. There are no rules. There, aren't. there really aren't any rules. There's not, not any rules at all. <laughs> and uh, I am amok, in case you were wondering, and... Uh, Chaos is how we operate here. I mean, just listen to the announcements. Uh, what was I doing right there? What was that all about? And some of you bought it as, no, it, no none of you bought it. But some, who, was, who might have bought it? The Internet, that's right, the Internet. And I'm trying to impress the Internet audience again before they all catch on. And the downside to this website thing that I brought up earlier in the announcements is they're going to be able to find each other. And that could be bad. But uh, so I'm trying to convince them that we operate. Uh, well, we do operate normal. It's just a relative word. Whose normal is it? But it is the case that I intend to extricate or extract ourselves from Exodus 20, 21, Acts 2, Revelation 6, 7, and 8 today, no matter what. And since this will be a no matter what, maybe, <laughs> I need to emphasize the consequential uh, that we've covered, the most determinative of the issues that come with this trilogy. And that is the first one right off the bat. Please break yourself, and I'm adding 21 of Exodus, break yourself of the habit of separating those away from one another. If you're reading the Ten Commandment element of Exodus 20, or the uh, altar element of Exodus 20, or the uh, Hebrew slave and the, uh, and the rebellious son element of 21, and the ox that gores somebody of Exodus 21, you have to recognize that that is part of the trilogy, Exodus 20, 21, Acts 2, Revelation 6, 7, and 8. That's the most predominant fundamental component. There's three parts here. Exodus 20, 21 is number one, part one. This is part two, and this is part three. It's a three-part I want to think movie, do it. Whatever gets you to recognize that I have a triad here versus a triune, right? I have three parts that make a whole. That is a triad. As opposed to three parts that are the whole. Each one is the whole themselves. That is triune. God is triune. This is a triad. And that is the predominant fundamental component that I have, most consequential component. I have to emphasize that. It's a trilogy, and attempting to pull them apart and separate one from the other, as is common with this one. This is the one everybody takes out, and they just, well, they don't even know the other two are even there, by the way, frankly. But they take this one out, and they think it's alone. And if you do that, that's common, very common. It's rare to find a church that knows that this is a trilogy, much less puts them all together. And if you do that with Acts 2... To do that with Acts 2 is to immediately fail. Immediately, boom, you're in the ditch. You didn't even get, 
you, you didn't get out of the driveway. Your car blew up as you're pulling out of the garage. Immediately fail. And fail miserably. And I, I quote, and I, I wish I could find out who really said it. I, I believe it was M.R. DeHaan. It might have been Arthur Pink. But in this, in this discussion, I believe uh, when the discussion is about Exodus 20, he brings up Acts 2 and he says the people that have separated out Acts 2 and think it is happening today in their church, but they call themselves Acts 2 churches, they're miserably deluded and it is love to tell them so. That's what he wrote. He wrote that back in the early 1900s. If it was pink, and I think it was. I add this. They are miserably deluded and it is love to tell them so and they will hate you for it. That's true. But God has come at Exodus 20 with a three-part sermon. Three parts. Don't be surprised by that. And the question then immediately comes, flying out at the student of Scripture, who to whom is he preaching these three parts to? And let's just take the first part. Who is he preaching the first part to primarily? Who's his immediate audience, if you wish to put it that way? Notice how I say that. <coughs> we, that's a human perspective. We would look at what, who is surrounding the mountain and we would say that's his immediate audience, right? But the Bible is outside of time. This goes back to Jennifer and Peter's question that I haven't quite got to, but I'm still working on it for both of you guys. No, it's coming. When Christ, when Christ is speaking, does he know that what he is saying will be eternally written down in a Bible of his design that he breathed? Of course he does. The Bible is outside of time. It is an outside of time document. Does the Bible know it's an outside of time document in the sense that this, when you're, when you're reading something about it, wouldn't you expect to find a reference to itself in it? Does that make sense? The outside of time document would have a reference to itself in its outside of time uh, design. So what should we do? People ask me all the time, how can you tell I got a call yesterday? How, if I was raised, I get this a lot, by the way, if I was raised in Islam in the Middle East, wouldn't I be an Islamist? I got that call last, last night. And I said, likely, you would. Well, how can I tell that the Bible is any different than the Koran? Well, because, we'll just start with this again. First off, you're, you're implying that God has not thought of this. Okay, just your very note, young lady last night, you know her. Okay, it's Anna. Okay. She implies started immediately. You're assuming that God hasn't figured this out. Plus, how many works-based religions have there been? Because Islam is a works-based religion. You have to do things to be saved. How many? Millions, hundreds of thousands at least. How many grace-based are there? Salvation is given by God through grace, through mercy. Which one do you think is the right one? The hundreds of thousands? Okay, that would turn this into a six. Okay, a seven. Hundreds of thousands are the one that's all by itself. Islam is no different. It's as big. It's no different than any of the others. They're all works-based. They're very small little works-based groups. They're here down the street. And then there is great big long ones or huge ones, but they're works-based. Anyway, I get that a lot. I just don't want to break down and cover it any more than that. But who is his immediate audience primarily? And when I say immediate, Recognize the thunderings or the languages at Exodus 20 are heard worldwide. He came. He's in the sky. He's got the host of angelic beings with him. He's got the four living creatures. He's got his smoke. He's got all of this incredible noise. And he's loud. 
So it's a worldwide event, but his immediate audience is who? And, and that should be a simple answer. But sadly, it's become ridiculous. So ridiculous that hardly anyone answers it correctly today. So let's see again. God comes 50 days after Israel crosses the Red Sea on the feast day of Shavuot, his design. And who is in the majority of his immediate audience? Who's gathered there? Who crossed the Red Sea? Israel did. What are they? They're Jews. Are there any Gentiles with them? Yeah. What I call the smartest people that ever lived. They didn't, they said, hey, looks to me like you got a, you got all this stuff of the Egyptians and you're taking off and all their cattle are dead and they got bugs and frogs and hey, I'm going with you guys. You got a little light in your, you got a cloud that looks like a battleship up there at least. Blowing stuff up, that'll be great. I'm siding with you. Hang on. That made so much sense to me. I'm just, like I said, I call them the smartest people. But mostly, it's Jews. Then, now we're at Acts 2. That's who's listening primarily here, right? Is Jews, the immediate audience. Now I'm at Acts 2. Who's the immediate audience? This is the second part. He delivers the first part to who? Now I'm at part two. Who's he talking to primarily? Who's there, if you will? Here's his three-part lecture series discussion. Part two. And he's 50 days from the resurrection of himself. I can't say that enough, by the way. Because, uh, again, I got another question from a young man called me, a military guy. You, you, you would not believe it, by the way. I should say this. A lot of people don't get through to me, and I still have Victor down there in Atlanta I've got to get back to, and Benjamin in Chicago. But sometimes I just answer the phone, and it's calls from all over the country. And I had a young man call me, a um, military guy, a U.S. Marine, had two or three tours in Afghanistan. Um, and he called me to ask me about the difference between God and Christ. And the reason he does that is because the church says there's a difference all the time. The Supper Dave was telling me about some guy that said, uh, how do he put it exactly? Tell me again so I get it right. Yeah, he said, he, he said, he said, pray to God the Father not to Jesus Christ, or something like that. He separated the two of them out. Okay, now that's a well-known uh, speaker on the radio someplace. Uh, that, see, that's, I, I doubt that he really thought that through very well. I hope he didn't. And if I had him here and I was hitting him with a, with a hammer, he would tell me that he knew it better. But what the church has done is it has separated, it has lowered Christ. I lost a lady one time that used to come here a lot, and I made her really mad, and most of you know her, so uh, obviously I won't identify her. And Ben is back there at home every time I do this and mention somebody accidentally. He, he extracts it out and uh, deletes it for me. And I call him, and I tell him, I said, okay, I just said somebody's name again, and they'll get emails and stuff. Um, but she got mad at me because I asked the question. I said, is Jesus Christ ever lower in authority to God? And her answer is, yes. And then I asked, does he remain inferior to God for all eternity? And her answer is, yeah. And I, of course, said, no. What, are you crazy? And so she left. She came up to talk to me about it, and I could tell that she was very, very angry, and so what did I do? Yeah, I went to the buffet table. That's right. I never saw her again. <laughs> that works really good. Oh, excuse me. I'm eating this now. <laughs> but do not have a position that says Jesus Christ is inferior to God. His sameness. He is the same as God. Triune. He is God. And, uh, and But the church today words it all the time that way. And so this poor guy was confused by that not for long. Because I did the same thing. What, are you crazy? He didn't want to be crazy. 
Okay, in Acts 2, he's delivering part two of his three-part lecture discussion, 50 days from the resurrection of himself, 50 days from the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ, salvation anointed, if you will, on his feast day of Shavuot again, and it's a pilgrimage festival, it's in Jehovah Jireh Salam, right, that Jerusalem, uh, that Salam means peace. Zion, as you know, as I brought that up, Bethel, Zion specifically, is a replacement for peace. That's what the word means. People get all upset. He's a Zionist. Really? He wants peace with God? Really? Hippies were peaceniks when I was younger. That was back when Lincoln had just been assassinated. Thank you for laughing. I only got five or six jokes. People ask me again, why do you do the same jokes? I only got five. I got, if I get another one, I'll put it in there, but I don't really have very many. Comedy is hard, right? Dying is easy. It's a pilgrimage festival in Jerusalem. Jehovah Jireh Salam. Peace. It's about the peace treaty. He keeps emphasizing his peace treaty and his peace altar. And all of that is Exodus 20, right? And so, who's there at this pilgrimage festival on the feast day of Shavuot, 50 days from the resurrection of God? Who's there? Who's listening to part two? Primarily who? Devout Jews are there. That's right. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Perhaps a hundred thousand of them. It's a huge crowd. There is no public address, and they're from every nation in the world. It says that. Every nation in the world, every nation on the earth, God said, are represented there. And there's hundreds of thousands of Jews there. And are there any Gentiles? Yes. And does it identify them? Yes. Cretans, who turn out to be pretty smart. I have... uh, It's fascinating to me how things get twisted in our language. Nimrod, one of the most wicked, evil men that ever lived, one of the most powerful, evil, wicked men, a killer of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of men, a brutal ruler. And everybody assumes Nimrod, he is an antichrist type of an extraordinary level. Um, and, And there is a position that says Nimrod because he was a priest is the resurrected false prophet of the book of Revelation. He is one of the evil triad, because Satan cannot have a triune. He can only counterfeit it. But Nimrod, extraordinary. He's the founder of the Babylonian paganism. Uh, He has a place in history of of unparalleled evil that is human. Judas doesn't count, because Judas has a supernatural component, right? But they also uh, make fun of Cretans. And the Cretans showed up. They're there. They're in the Bible at this feast day. They heard the, the uh, r- rushing wind, if you will, and the trumpet. They saw the smoke. And they saw the lightning. They're there. So they're Gentiles here. But primarily, it's devout Jews. And they heard 11 Jewish apostles. We'll make the case for Paul someday. Maybe not in this particular series. But they heard 11 Jewish apostles speak Hebrew and everyone there, including the Cretans and the Romans and all the rest of them, and all the Jews who came from every nation, every one of them heard in their born language. And I know this is repetitive, but I have to keep pounding this in. They heard. So the miracle is on the hearing side of this, not on the speaking side. And that's a physics question. I wish I had time to go through the physics of sound and the physics of hearing, and the brain and the mind again. But it's just like Exodus 20. The same thing happened at Exodus 20. I had a whole bunch of Egyptians. I had all kinds of slaves that the Egyptians had. And those slaves saw a chance. Hey, we're getting out of here. We're going with these guys. So all kinds of people left. There was a big amalgamation, if you will, of people. And they all heard in their own language, didn't they? In both places, it's just like Exodus 20, it's called the thunderings. And they heard in their born language. Very important. It's not just heard, but it's this born part is very interesting to me. It has to be in their born language. Now, at Revelation 6, 7, and 8, what do I got? 
So far, he's done these two, right? Those two are done. He did part one. He did part two. We got part three to go. Part three begins at Revelation 6, 7, and 8. And I will offer the conjecture that part three, what day did this happen? What feast day? Shavuot? What day, feast day did this happen? I'm taking the bet that this is going to happen on the feast day of Shavuot. And God is very mathematical and consistent. And now the audience is definitely Jews. He's doing this for the Jews again. But it's a worldwide audience. I have Jews and Gentiles. Well, interestingly, somebody is missing. Who missing? The church is missing. The church took off in Revelation 4. The church is not there. The bride has been removed. The 3,000 golden calfers at Acts 2, they repented. They believed Jesus God. Can't say that enough. Jesus God. No comma. One word. The Messiah is Jesus God. Anointed God. Man God. Jesus God. That was a tremendous truth. That was the point of that sermon, by the way. And the 3,000 golden calfers, when they heard Jesus God, they repented and they believed, and they believed in the hypostatic union of God and man. They believed that God had added humanity. The Word had become flesh. The Messiah was, in fact, not just a man. He was Creator God Himself walking as a man in their midst. And the Acts 2, 3,000 are in stark contrast to the Exodus 32, 3,000. By the way, they both had what? Tremendous amount of information. The Exodus 32 had God overhead. They had the pillar of cloud right there. They heard everything. They saw the angels. They saw the living creatures. They heard the living creatures. It's all of that stuff. And what do they do? Hey, I got a great idea. What's their idea? Let's go collect some gold and let's make a cow statue. That's their idea. I mean, that really is. It's what they did. It's astonishing. More on that later. That's part of the no matter what maybe, the maybe part. Okay. Last Sunday, I presented what I have concluded to be the best explanation of the blood moon and the black sun. But I wanted to cover that part for you again to get all those fundamental consequential elements in one more time so that you start to commit them to memory. And it's amazing, I was saying something, I can't remember to who it was, but I used to debate this subject all the time. And as an athletic person, naturally I kept track of wins and losses. And it was amazing for me to get into these debates and, uh, and find out that my opponent, not amazing, because after a while it got to be routine, that the person who was going to debate Acts 2 with me had no idea about Exodus 20 or Revelation 6. So I start off with a, you know, I hit the ball not just out of the park, but I hit it out of the stadium. And you should see the shocked looks on their faces as they had no idea. Their whole life they were told that Acts 2 stood alone. They never knew it was part 2. And so, very quickly, my, in fact, I had one gentleman just tell me, I have nothing to say. And they sit down. So my one loss record is really good. Really, really good. In fact, I'm undefeated. They don't even show up anymore. Because they have to admit to me that they're going to separate out Acts 2 on purpose, even though they know that's wrong. So I start out with a really big advantage. i got a thousand runs and they haven't batted yet. And last Sunday, I presented that I can, I, what I think is the best explanation of this blood moon and black sun thing. It's a big problem. And people will say, well, have you looked at the other views? And I have. I have looked at them. I, because again, I had to deal with the other views. But I think this is the best one. 
I'll explain why here in a second. These are signs of Joel 2 and Revelation 6. Joel 2, Acts 2, Revelation 6, right? They all fit together. And Peter recites Joel 2 at Acts 2 in response to the first question, the first of the two questions, right? We have two questions at Acts 2. It's what he responds to with Joel 2, which is the blood moon and the black sun sign. He responds to the what does this mean question with this. So the black sun and the blood moon somehow explains the second part of the three-part Trilogy, right? And somehow, some way, whatever explanation you have of the blood moon and the black sun has to in it has to explain uh, Acts two and Exodus twenty how they fit together because it is answering that question of the what does this mean question. Um, and the volcanic dust view, and you'll run, that's the most common. You see it all the time. What it, what they're saying essentially is that there's a bunch of volcanic activity just happens to happen. Uh, at Revelation 6. All right, just on the feast day of Shavuot, in the tribulation, on this particular day, that there happens to be a blood moon and a black sun. We've had a bunch of volcanic eruptions, and that eruption went into the atmosphere, and uh, we can't really see the sun now, so we're going to say it's black. Um, and uh, we can't see the moon so good, so uh, we're going to say that it's red. That's our explanation. Okay? That's a naturalistic explanation. That is uh, somebody that is very afraid of making scientific community mad at them, so they want to come up with a naturalistic explanation that the scientific community will say, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we buy that. Understand the scientific community hates you, thinks you're a moron. And when you agree with them, what are you? Exactly what they think you are. Revelation 6 is not a naturalistic event. It is a supernatural event. The the volcanic dust idea fails there. It also fails the Christ-honoring test. How is volcanic dust somehow honoring Christ? That's your first question. Which interpretation of the two events, uh, if you want to take the volcanic volcanic dust uh, explanation, which uh, is uh, the most Christ-honoring? Because if you haven't... Um, an interpretation of Scripture that is not Christ-honoring, you have the wrong one. Which of these, how do these lift up Christ? How do they honor Christ? How are they a type or a symbol of Christ? And the volcanic dust theory simply fails here, and it fails everywhere. And I know that makes many who hold the dust view very upset. And because I'm so very conscious of the feelings of others. I'm naturally empathetic. I wonder if they can hear the laughter on the internet. I had somebody tell me, I was telling uh, Boris the other day, uh, I told somebody I was empathetic and sympathetic, and he said I had too many prefixes. That he was buying, he was buying that I am pathetic, but he didn't, he wanted me to eliminate the prefixes. Uh, but I, I, I am you know, sad that I have hurt the feelings of other people. And, and, I, and I want to reach out to the volcanoes. I do. And offer sympathy for their angry emails that are coming. I really do. And no, I really don't. That is a fake reach out. I'm suggesting that simplistic explanations like volcanic dust for complex questions that are supernatural and types of Christ are wasteful processes and are always wrong. And you miss, and ultimately they're, 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 you just miss everything and they're useless, but ultimately they're also disrespectful and they become foolishness. And the result is, is that you drive away people when you have these kind of views. Yeah, because they're, they're just ridiculous on their face. No one will be drawn to the simple for very long. That's why I quote Proverbs 122 all the time. God asks us, how long will you love foolishness? Okay, so let's take another run at this blood moon and black sun signs. See if I can clear it up as best I can. Remember, they are the what of Genesis. They are the two great lights 
the two great lights. Now, Lisa said that she told her grand her father that last week. As the big E yelled out Genesis. Where do you find the sun, the moon, and the stars? Genesis. It's where it first comes up. And there in Genesis, the sun and the moon are called the two great lights. I want you to know that Lisa said she thought of that first. And that you got undue credit for that. To which I said, too bad. (laughs) Anything that is called great in Scripture... Anything that is called light in Scripture, you've got to immediately assume what? Somehow they are what? Pictures of Jesus Christ. God does not call things great that are not himself. Why not? Am I great? Should you... Listen, back to this a second. Some pastor got caught transporting transporting a 16-year-old girl across state lines, and you can figure out why. And uh, Don't worship these people or any people. Don't ask for their autographs. Don't lift them up. Don't run forward and grab their legs and cry on top of them. Don't write them letters that they're supposed to bless. They're flawed men. They're creatures. They're sinful. They do stupid things. Quit worshiping men. Don't call men great. Do you think God calls men great? No. If he doesn't call himself great, people say, well, God is always talking about himself as great. Because everything else is what? Sin. He has to call himself great. It's the only choice he has. Otherwise, it would be sin. You have to worship God because you can't worship anything else. Otherwise, it would be Sin. That's how it works. When the angel comes to you, he's going to look pretty impressive. And you're going to see him and and you're going to see two of them. They're going to look really impressive. And the first thing you're going to do is what? Probably utter something stupid. And they're going to tell you right then, don't worship us. We're angels. Quit it. So those two signs have to be talking about, to be called great, to be called lights, they have to be about Christ. Have to be. So we have to figure out how they're about Christ. They're declaring something that is about Christ to the entire watching world. Everybody sees these two great signs and everybody is going to hear in their born language again in Revelation 6, 7, and 8. I've got 144,000 and two witnesses going to take care of that. And I've got to get back to that question from uh, James in the second row about the difference between the 144,000 and two witnesses. I'll do it, maybe. God prefers, by the way, those things. He wants people to see, but He also wants them to hear in their born language. It's very important to Him. Don't try to take that apart and get rid of it. God prefers it that way. He wants to make sure you know something about Him. What's that? Oh, I'm... Lori got me a bunch of markers and I put them away. Okay? Here is an official sign that God has. No translations needed. He does not need translations. Why not? Duh, he's gone. He's worked out this language thing. It comes from him. Study language. Language has to be given. It cannot be developed on its own. Isn't that interesting? How important language is. It must be given. That's why he protects it so much. So, the two great lights, I believe, are best understood as symbols of Christ's redemptive work. Light in the midst of darkness. That's the moon, right? and light ending and destroying darkness on a regular basis. Every time the sun comes up, it destroys and ends darkness. So I have the ending of darkness and I have in the midst of darkness. So both of them, you can substitute sin. Light or life, life-giving light, if you will. The light of the world, the life of the world is in the midst of the darkness. He has come to the darkness. That's an extraordinary truth. That's in Genesis as well. Light comes to the darkness. He doesn't have to. He does. 
because he's good, and that he ends the darkness. So I have both of those there. I have the blood moon and the black sun. The sun and the moon both doing that as types of Christ. Now, at Acts 2, Peter, who's also a type of Israel all the time, every time you see Peter, recognize that he represents Israel. Israel rises up at the end of the age. Because Joel 2 is talking about the last days, the end of the age. Israel rises up in the last days at the end of the age and tells you Joel 2 is going to happen, which is Revelation 6. Right? 7 and 8. The end of the age of the Gentiles just prior to Jesus God coming. And Jesus God is coming. He has three phases of his ministry, right? You know that? He has the prophet stage. He has the high priest stage where he is now. The prophet stage ended at his ascension and the high priest stage began. The high priest stage is going to end and the Jesus God, Jesus God is going to be who now? He's going to be king. The kingship phase comes. And that's being established. So the return of Christ is being established with these two great signs. The blood moon and the black sun. So we see all of this. Peter or Israel rising up at the blood moon and the black sun. So we know that Israel is being restored at, when we see the blood moon and the black sun. The restoration of the nation of God will be at the sign of the blood moon and the black sun. And the light in the midst of the darkness now becomes, it changes, doesn't it? The moon changes and it becomes blood. So a change has occurred, and the sun changes, and it has become black. So that is telling me something about Jesus Christ. I've told you what it is. The light in the midst of darkness would become blood now, and the light that gives off light would become dark. And those are signs to everyone in the world, everyone sees and everyone hears. Those are signs to the world in the tribulation. And something is also happening to Israel with those signs. That's the, what's happening at Acts 2. That is why Joel 2 is told by, is Peter rising up. Israel rising up. And obviously both the sun and the moon are being used by God to teach the entire world about himself as the tribulation reaches when? As I'm getting towards the midpoint of the tribulation. And by the way, when I see the blood moon and the black sun, and I got a calculator, I'm just hanging out in the tribulation. I won't be there, by the way. I'm using me as kind of a, what's the word, allegory. But let's say I was there, which I won't be. Stay with me here. I would have a calculator. Why would I have a calculator? Because I know something. I can do something that no other time in the history of the world can you do. What can I do? I can do the math. I see that blood moon and that black sun and I'm pulling out the calculator. How come? I know how much time is left. I know something. I'm not the only one that has a calculator. Who else has a top calculator? Bible even tells you he's got a calculator. Who's got a calculator? Who knows what time it is? Yeah, Satan knows. Satan knows he has but a short time, Revelation 12, 12. Time is now something known. See, we don't know about the rapture. But we will know the, the absolute perfect day of the return. All you've got to have is a pencil. You don't need to have money. Everybody's writing a book. I predict when Christ will return. Yeah, all of us are doing that. Buy my book. No, buy mine. You can't know the time or the hour of the rapture, but you can know and will know, and the whole world knows, and Satan knows that the time is very short, and the killing will start to accelerate. Who's Satan in the Antichrist world? Who are they targeting? They start out looking for Jews. They're kill every Jew they can. Now, they can't get the Jews very easy. we got Bosra. we got all kinds of supernatural help. So who do they kill next? That's right. 
Everybody on their side. That's what he's doing. You sign up for the Satan army, his goal is to get you killed as fast as he can. Especially if you're unsaved. He's focusing on the unsaved deaths. He wants to kill as many unsaved people as he can. It's all about company, baby. Company in the lake of fire. He goes first. Angels and Satan. That's who it was made for. Antichrist and false prophet are resurrected and thrown in there first. But eventually, he's going to have company. And they're all going to have the mark of the beast on as many of them as he can get. And that killing is accelerating. They're in a hurry. Kill as many unsaved as they can. Time is known. He knows. And the end of the tribulation can be calculated. And the return of Christ as king can be deduced by anyone and everyone. We're in the last days. That's why Acts 2 says, in the last days, we're going to have the blood moon and the black sun. Because Acts 2 is about the last days, right? And there are these two great light signs. The blood moon, the red, the black sun. And that tells you something. If the sun is, it tells you something about salvation. Because both of them are about Christ, right? That Christ's name is what? Salvation. It's about salvation. And we still have salvation in the tribulation. It's not been withdrawn. But what's happening? Running out of time. I could say, hey, you got, looks to me like, 912 days to be saved. If you live. Let me do that again. Oh, 9-11. If you live. And Satan knows he got to kill you while you're not saved. He's hunting you down, baby. He's hunting down the saved, too, because what do the saved do? They try to convert the unsaved. All the saved people have calculators. And they're running around as best they can. What is If you're in the tribulation and you're a saved person, that means you weren't raptured, you got saved in the tribulation, and I'm just now going to save half my sermon for next week. You're in the tribulation. What's going to happen to you? You dead. And it's bad dead. It ain't going to be pleasant. So what do you got? You know time's running out either way. You're not going to make it through, very likely. Go find the Jews. Be like the Cretans. Be like the guys that came out of Egypt. Find those people and hide with them. That'd be smart, really smart, if you want to live. But if you don't, you have to not be there. Say you're in Alaska. <laughs> now you got a tough road to hold. What are you going to do? You're running out of time. And every time you open your mouth about salvation, who's shooting at you? How many people are you going to get to before he shoots you dead? Or cuts your head off or whatever he's got to do? He's going to stop you, doesn't he? He's going to stop you. And he's going to kill all the people you're trying to testify to. That's the plan. So you have very little time and you know it. And, and listen, you might as well... I, I think... Christians, and I hate to bring up movies because all movies are horrible today. and All the actors are dumb as a bag of hammers, and I just get tired of them. But I can't help but think about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Because that's what you got. You're running out to hundreds of thousands of people shooting at you. And you're not going to, you're not anywhere. But you got to do it. Go down blazing, right? Because you're going down. You're in the tribulation. You have made a mistake. You didn't get on the bus. And now you're here. Do the best you can. God will honor you. He does in the Bible. Salvation remains in the tribulation. It has not been withdrawn, but time is short to be saved. Time is short to be lived. Time is short to testify. Time is short to, to be saved. Time is short to, to, to be unsaved. Time is short. And what is Christ doing? He's going, he's no longer becoming the sun, or he's no, he's changing, isn't he? He's changing himself from the moon to the blood moon, and he's changing himself from the sun to the black sun. That's what he's doing. Because he's going from high priest to king, right? And the sun ended, had this symbol of ending sin, had this some, uh, uh, symbol of giving life, giving salvation, and now the Son is doing what? Christ is doing what? He's going from Savior to what? To King. What's the difference between Savior and King? A lot of, lot of difference. Judgment perfectly said. 
The second office of Christ is concluding, the high priest office. And the coming king is no longer going to mediate. He's no longer going to intercede. He's going to come to judge and to end sin. And thus we have the black sun. It's transitionary. Uh, it lights salvation to heat judgment is what's happening. Now, where else in the Bible do I find light salvation and heat judgment side by side? Where do I find them? Because I have it here again. I have light salvation and heat judgment. Now, because I have the blood moon, right? Genesis 15 is absolutely correct. Here we go again. Genesis 15. Is everything about Genesis 15? That in Genesis 3.15. The change is being made. How Jesus Christ deals with mankind is turning. And God puts His great signs in the, in the heavens. And everybody sees it and everybody hears it in their own language. And the change is being made. And Christ is going from the light of the world, the Savior of the world, to the judge of the world. And that is the meaning of the sun becoming black. The light... Because what happens when the sun stops being black? It's going to go black. And what happens? It's going to disappear. And it comes back as what? Heat. How long you got? Once that sun flips, baby, it's heat. And it burns. But we still got a blood moon. That heat is going to end the wickedness, and it's going to end the wicked ones. But we got a blood moon, because God always has a blood moon. And let me just give you Revelation 17:11. This is an extraordinary verse. You've got to mark it down. I should do it every Christmas. I used to do Leviticus every Christmas, and then people stopped coming. That's funny, but true, as you know. Here we go. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. That's an extraordinary verse. Just look at the words in that verse. I got life. I have flesh. I have the blood. And what does he say about the blood? Where do you get the blood? He gives it to you. I have given you the blood. Given. What does the blood do? It gives you life. I have given it. And the altar is there. The Exodus 20 for atonement. Your souls. He tells you you're a soul again. It's the blood that makes atonement. Nothing but the blood, right? His blood that He gives that saves. And it is sacred. This is a sacred truth. A sacred... We're to be respectful and appreciation. He goes on in Leviticus 17, 12-14, talking about how if you, you kill an animal, don't eat the blood. What's the matter with you? Don't you know the blood is a symbol of salvation? It's sacred. Be respectful. Don't drink blood. Put the blood in the ground. Just like who? Cover it with dirt. Just like who? Just like Abel. He said, don't be like the wicked who eat blood, who scorn the blood. The life is in the blood. Understand instead. Know the symbol that is blood. Treat the blood of any animal with reverence. Recognize what God is teaching about salvation, about Himself, about true life with blood. As a symbol, he says his face will be against the person who eats blood and he will be cut off. So how are you feeling about your rare steak right now? I'm just curious. Good. That's not what it means. I just threw that in to see if anybody was still with me. Show, show no contempt for the blood symbol. Do not mock the symbol that is blood. And notice that I have a blood moon now. I have a salvation moon. That's what's going on. I have life moon. The life is in the blood. I have the life moon here. And it's a symbol of Christ's sacrifice. And to eat blood is to taunt God, by the way. And that will not go well. And now the sun is black, soon to return as heat. And burning the scoffers, burning the blood eaters. And by the way, that takes you to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Sodom figured out what was going on with blood. 
And they began to kill people and deal with their blood. And then that's where you get all of the vampire stuff and all of that legendary stuff. All goes back to Sodom. Anyway, the moon is blood. And the moon is testifying still of what God has given. God has given blood. He puts a big symbol in the sky and he says it's blood. Look at it. Get yourselves saved because the judgment is coming. You're running out of time, baby. But he's still giving blood. What an amazing thing for God to do, to still give his blood to the very wicked. So this twofold sign to the world that hates him. Sun will be ended. Judgment must come. Why must judgment come? God is good. Got to do it. People said to me last week, you're saying that very simplistically. Yes, I am. I am. I know that his goodness, he's just good. To say that it causes or that it must, that's not doctrinally sound perfectly, but still, I don't care today. I want you to understand, judgment must come because God is good. And if he isn't, doesn't end sin, then he won't be good. And so it has to happen. And salvation is given still in the midst of all of this judgment-ending heat, uh, sin-ending heat with judgment. Uh, salvation is given because God is good. And this takes you back again. We have the blood moon and we have the black sun. And the black sun equals what? Genesis 15. Here we are again. The black sun is the smoking furnace. Sorry. Almost wrote the wrong word. Smoking furnace is the black sun of Revelation 6, of Joel 2, of Acts 2. That's what's going on. The blood moon, okay, is what? That is the fiery lamp. Fiery lamp of Genesis 15. So once again, when you see Acts 2, you have to know that we're in a discussion of Genesis 15. If you're in Revelation 6, you're in a discussion of Genesis 15 again. The animals split in half. Smoking furnace, burning lamp, going through. The two great lights are going through the animals of Genesis 15. That's what's happening. Okay, I said I was going to conclude here with uh, Revelation 8, but you can see they're driving me off the stage. It's their fault. So, so everybody boo them. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, you can do better than that. No, I'm kidding. Let's rise and be dismissed.